it's also, it is a form of escapism, I think, in the face of oppression. You just want a much simpler world in which there's a very clear-cut battle of, of good versus evil. And it's a very simple view of the world where you don't have to think through the complexities of your subject position between these places in one place and also having some roots to another place. The thing is that there is no, there's nothing to project onto. There's no romanticized, idealized homeland. Welcome to Minority Report. Our guest today is Brian Hugh, founding editor of New Bloom magazine. In our conversation, we discuss the Taiwanese diaspora, the nuances of diaspora politics, and tankies, which, by Brian's own definition, are leftists who back authoritarian regimes in the belief that they present an alternative to Western capitalist nations. This is a really special conversation, and I don't know a better way to end the year. Here's Brian Yu. Hi, Brian. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm very good. Just to start off, I'm wondering, who are you and what do you do? So I'm Brian Hugh. I'm one of the founding editors of New Moon Magazine, which is based in Taipei, Taiwan. We are a publication, an activist publication that was founded around eight years ago at this point now, in 2014, after the Sun Farm Movement. Sun Farm Movement involved the month-long occupation of the Taiwanese legislature by student activists. And a lot of us are people that are involved in the occupation or organizing overseas solidarity rallies in support of that. And so that was a kind of generational moment in Taiwan, and a lot of us became involved in activist politics in Taiwan since then, or we maybe were involved before. We felt there's a need to kind of bridge the gap between Taiwan and the international world and connect Taiwan and social movements here and leftist activists here with leftist activists elsewhere. And so I became the impetus for the publication. Right now, we run a space in Wanhua, Taipei, which I'm sitting in right now. We publish daily. Um, and apart from that, I'm also a freelance journalist and translator. Uh, I grew up in New York. I spent 20 years there, and the rest of my life is in Taiwan. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think just a lot of the things I do now are just focused on kind of creating this this space for communication, I guess, between activists here and elsewhere, just raising the level of discourse thinking about Taiwan internationally. Mm -hmm. Can I ask when your family moved from, was it mainland or Taiwan to New York also? I'd like to know that just in case. I was from Taiwan. So yeah, my background is a bit complicated there where, for example, in Taiwan, there's the division between mainlanders, the people that came with the KMT to Taiwan after the Chinese Civil War. People are that are ethically Han, but from prior waves of migration over the last 400 years, and they're indigenous. And so um, the 2% indigenous population were the original inhabitants of Taiwan, obviously. And so my, my family background is that my mother is half and half, half mainlander and half Benchenin. My dad is Indonesian Chinese, but he immigrated to Taiwan for college and just kind of stayed there, high school and college and just stayed there. And there are quite a lot of people that have that background. A lot of people from Southeast Asia of ethnic Chinese descent or not that moved to Taiwan eventually. Um, and he's also a Hakka, which is a Han minority. And uh, yeah, so that's my background. And most of my family is in Taiwan. Three of my grandparents were born in China. One was not. And so that's kind of my, the background. But yeah, they went to the U.S. in the 1980s. So there's generally a kind of movement abroad of quite a lot of people in that period of time to go to study abroad and, and so forth. And a lot of people just like, stayed abroad. Um, yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, I wanted to ask you, what does it mean to be from the Taiwanese diaspora versus the mainland Chinese diaspora? I'm really curious about this distinction. Yeah, so it's actually really interesting because I think particularly in the U.S. you encounter people that say they're Taiwanese American. That really has a kind of political meaning implicit in it, in which they view themselves as Taiwanese and not Chinese. People that are, for example, descended from mainlanders that are from that came with came to Taiwan might not consider themselves Taiwanese, or they might consider Taiwanese to be a subset of Chinese. And so oftentimes they'll be referring to themselves as Chinese American. Or they might use both terms interchangeably because they might view Taiwanese American as the same as Chinese American, or one as a subset of the other, for example. And so there's these kind of different complications there. 
Um, and these are still playing out in many ways. I mean, for example, a lot of ways that IDT is carried on is through various diaspora organizations in the US. And so there are diaspora organizations that drive home the point of Taiwanese identity and that is a form of socialization, for example. But then even then among the mainlanders, the Taiwanese mainlanders, the Weishun, as the term is, they'll still draw distinctions between themselves and mainland Chinese that are actually from mainland Chinese today, that is from the PRC, the contemporary PRC. Oftentimes, for example, there's still feel there's a difference. They might, that might be in terms of language or even in terms of class. Oftentimes it's actually a differentiation in terms of class. And so they actually have different social circles. You sometimes will have the mainlander, the Weishun Taiwanese, in the U.S. or elsewhere, not mixing with the PRC Chinese or people that are from Chinese or from prior Chinese waves of migration before even existence of the PRC. And so you have these kind of different variations on identity there, I guess. Going more into that, I'm curious because reading your work and listening to some podcasts you've been on, Time to Say Goodbye was the one I was listening to before this. <laughs> um, I'm curious about what you make of identity formation in the diaspora, especially as it comes to the tanky phenomena. Right. Listening to you talk about it, it seems the complexities of these national identities, whether they're the U.S. or Chinese, really complicate the narrative right, of what does it mean to form identity. So I'm curious as to what you make of the tanky phenomena. Yeah, I think it's one of those things about immigration, because at a certain generation, you often do have kids trying to recover their cultural roots, for example, whereas their parents may have been very intent on assimilating in the belief that this would provide a better future for their children. And so you have that at a certain point. Uh, but then I think oftentimes what you have is the idealization of cultural roots. And so you see that in various forms. Uh, oftentimes it's around food, for example. And you see that with diasporas all around, whether Han or Taiwanese or Chinese or elsewhere. It's kind of idealization of food and focus on that as kind of marker of identity. And I think oftentimes that is because people's encounter with identity in that form in the country of settled and is often through food, for example. I also find that, for example, in terms of myself, I found the limits of a lot of Chinese American organizations, their view of Taiwan was actually very similar to that of a tourist, focused on like night markets and beef noodles and these things that are stinky tofu and things that tourists love, but are not really Taiwan as experienced. And so the tanky phenomenon I find really interesting because I actually think that is quite similar. You're idealizing your cultural mother country, but then you try to make that fit together with your own politics. And so, for example, you might have leftist politics in the U.S. And so then you want to idealize your cultural mother country, which is in this case, China, and combine that with your kind of leftist politics. And so that results in this kind of fixation on the cultural motherland as a kind of leftist utopia or what have you. And so I think that's that's where the tanky phenomenon really comes from. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in that also, just because... It feels a little different from other diasporas in the United States, right, where I think about primarily um, Cuban-Americans, right, are very conservative mm -hmm. for almost the opposite reason. Um, because of what happened on the island, they kind of have that reactionary politics to it. So I'm curious to see how, how do you create nuance in diaspora communities when it comes to these leftist conversations? Like if you lean left or, you know, have socialist leanings, but how can you maintain that without going full authoritarian? Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, in terms of, let's say, China or Taiwan, you do have both diasporas. I mean, there are plenty of, for example, Chinese Americans that are, or Chinese Americans that are willing to side with very hawkish Republicans and believe that this is how you, let's say, get China democratized or prevent China from being a threat to Taiwan. And so the tankies are kind of the other diaspora that's more left wing. But I think then you have this kind of diasporic polarization. I think that it occurs in both, you know, the right wing direction and the left wing direction. But then having a space for nuance is very difficult because I think then that 
Um, oftentimes for diaspora, the, the politics that they reach for that are at hand or closer are those of the U.S., where they grew up and spent their lives. And so then they will project those dynamics onto the cultural mother country. In terms of, for example, Chinese Americans or Chinese Americans, mostly Chinese Americans in the tanky sense, or they'll identify as such. It's that, for example, they can't understand the notion that Han Chinese are the majority in China. And so when you're the majority, what do you do? You're press minorities. And so then you project these dynamics onward. And so I think that there's a process of kind of denaturalization. I mean, you need to be aware of the dynamics of the cultural mother country are quite different than what you yourself expect, or they're not the dynamics of the country that you grew up in. And so I think particularly in the U.S., there's the notion to kind of view the U.S. as the belly of the beast, the worst of the worst countries, and so forth. And so... Sure, the U.S. is the most powerful country in the world, but also it's not the only bad country out there. And I think then there's this kind of, it's, it's quite interesting too, because this is actually quite America-centric. It centers U.S. struggles as the most significant and everything else is inconsequential. But then you have that then mixing together with this desire to have a romanticized, idealized cultural mother country. And so there becomes this notion that the U.S. is evil, China is good. China is the good, strong country fighting against the evil, bad, strong country that I live in. And then I have this role as diaspora serving as some kind of bridge or ambassador for the cultural mother country in the U.S. I mean, it's actually quite interesting to me because eventually the tankies I run to and fight with online a lot, the Chinese tankies supporting China, they are often very nationalistic, but their nationalism is so different from the Chinese nationalists that are literally Chinese people in China today. The things they say are completely different. I mean, for example, the U.S. tankies that are pro-China idealize Deng Xiaoping. And a lot of the Chinese nationalists, the Chinese leftist nationalists in China really despise him. They view him as a turn away from the Maoist fundamentals they want to return to. But then that's, that's for example, a key way in which they differ. Yeah, that's so curious, isn't it? I'm, I'm, I'm so fascinated. Part of the you know, thought process behind this project was just how diaspora communities differ radically from the point of origin, right? Um, mm, yeah. And so I think that's so fascinating to me. Yeah, I also think an interesting point is how powerful the diaspora can be sometimes, because there's many countries in which the diaspora in the U.S. has so much more money, and then they end up sending that money back home and creating a large effects, but they have this different set of politics, and they project their own dynamics onto that. And that's that's even the case with Taiwan. I mean, the diaspora in the U.S. is very influential. With whatever political camp you're in, the pro-China camp or the more pro-independence camp, whenever you have a before presidential election, you send your candidates to the U.S. to raise money because the U.S. diaspora has so much money. And I think that's true for many other countries as well. I mean, I've heard a lot of African countries are also the same way. I'm curious um, as to what's the mood on the island right now, especially in light of U.S.-China relations. If you can maybe talk a little bit about that. And I'd also like to use it to ask more about, there was a term thrown out and Time to Say Goodbye, the podcast you were on previously, which I'll link below this. Mm. Um, but you threw out the term bizarro orientalism. And I was curious if you mm. could maybe extrapolate on that a little more. Yeah, so I think the mood in Taiwan is pretty calm, I guess. It's always been kind of calm. It's interesting because there's a, such a large perception gap between within Taiwan and outside of it because of the fact that the live fire exercises that China carried around, around Taiwan after Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in August, sure, they were the closest exercises to Taiwan to date, closer than even during the the previous Taiwan Straits crisis. And yet there's not panic. People are quite used to it because people are quite used to these Chinese threats that have been gone on for decades. And so people are flipping out about World War II in or World War III in the U.S. as though this might happen. But people in Taiwan did not have a sense of threat. Uh, there are a sense of threat that occur. People do feel there's a threat from China at times, but this was not one of them because I just think the, the threat calculus is very different. But that, that perception did not always make it through even to the diaspora. And so I think then 
there's a lot of panicking in, in the US among some diaspora because there's not the sense that things are relatively calm in Taiwan. Um, and so I think that also just points to the difference in the way things occur on the ground in, in the quote unquote cultural mother country and elsewhere. And so that is one of those things. But oftentimes you do have the perception from afar that is not so accurate. I mean, people that are directly in the line of fire from China probably have a more accurate sense of the threat, I would think, the actual sense of threat that is at any given moment. But that's not always how it plays out in terms of global discourse. Um, yeah, regarding the term of like bizarre orientalism, I think what's interesting is that. I mean, that's just a term, but there's a real undertone towards this idealization of the culture of mother country in various aspects, including tankism, but also this kind of culturist aspect running food I mentioned earlier. That is very Orientalist. And then you have the internalization of, for example, Western tropes about Asia or the West that as a, we are different, that this becomes a point of pride, that we are collective and so forth. We're not so focused on the cult of the individual and that sort of thing. And there's a kind of mythologizing around that as a point of difference. And then I think that you really do see that with the tankies regarding their kind of idealization of the Chinese government, of the Chinese Communist Party as this kind of heroic party that somehow you have the police and they're socialists and they do the things that they don't do the things that the police in the U.S. does. And somehow, you know, they claim it's a different phenomenon altogether and just becomes orientalized and nostalgized. And you also have this kind of discussion of China in civilizational terms as though 5,000 years of civilization. I mean, you think about the people that talk about similar rhetoric in the U.S. and they're probably like neo-Nazis or something, you know, we're talking about Greco-Roman civilization or Aryan civilization and how the U.S. inherits this from the great thousand, 5,000 years of Western civilization and has to defend this torch of liberty or what have you, then you transpose it to China and this is what the tankies are saying. And I think it goes back to this kind of culturalism, this cultural nationalism that you see among the diasporans sometimes. I'm curious also because um, kind of what you said, right, like kind of transposing this idea that one has in their head to the mainland, the motherland. In your articles, you talk a lot about how part of the rise of the tanky, I guess I'll say, is this oh. increased xenophobia in the US and a response to the Trump years. So I'm curious as to, I'm still trying to formulate the exact question, but how do you balance those things, right? The very real racism and xenophobia that came on the rise during the latter half of the 2010s versus, you know, also the very authoritarian nature and also repressive nature of the Chinese state when it comes to Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities and just political repression overall. Yeah, so it is a very response to the rise of anti-Asian hate in the U.S. I think people then, I think oftentimes when you do face discrimination, you retreat to a form of cultural nationalism. And I think that's what it is. It's focus on identity then as a way to kind of resist that. And, you know, that has positive implications. For example, there's a rise in Asian American organizing after this in response to this. And there's many positive implications too. thinking through these issues critically. I mean, just trying to break through the model minority myth, for example. But then you also have to retreat to cultural nationalism. But then a lot of it is also escapism. For example, you face this discrimination at home, literally at home, in front of you, where you live, and that kind of thing. And so then you have this kind of romanticized homeland that you can retreat to in your imagination that is these problems don't exist. Things are so much better. You don't have discrimination. Then you even have this powerful state that apparently acts against oppression worldwide. That's kind of what people want. What's interesting to me then is that, you know, there's this production, but also it's almost a, a, a quasi-odd inversion of America, you're critical of American empire. You are facing the threats from American empire internally to the anti-Asian hatred. But then you also kind of want a good empire, um, something that is empire except for good. And so their notion of China is actually that. I mean, they, they do have that notion of China in terms of the US actually, in terms of US power. It's very much projection in that sense. It's kind of what they would like to see. 
I've I've never understood this dynamic. Also, I want to just put this out there. I I never understood you know the zero sum game of good and bad when it comes to nation states. To me, it's always been a little confusing or perplexing. Where I'm like, they're not like people with morals. Like, how are you going to impose <laughs> on them? You know, these ideas of what is good and what is bad. Like, one empire is not good, so the other one must be better. You know, like it's always been very perplexing to me. <laughs> yeah it's a it's kind of manichaeism i actually just kind of wonder about that you know myself i mean you literally do have tl collective for example saying that if you do take a nuanced position or try to claim that both sides have a fault you're just excusing one side or the other and that's basically arguing against nuance that you can only uncritically defend one side or the other and so it's a very kind of bipolar view of the world but i think that it's also it is a form of escapism i think in the face of oppression you just want a much simpler world in which there's a very clear-cut battle of, of good versus evil i mean the apologists for u.s empire frame the world in such terms too in terms of a good good versus evil and it's a very simple view of the world where you don't have to think through the complexities of your subject position between these places in one place and also having some roots to another place and what that brings with it or that perhaps the world you're just copying empires. Maybe no states are good. Maybe they're all bad. And you just have states that have their own interests out there and they're all contesting with each other with high-minded and lofty rhetoric, which they use to justify themselves, but maybe it's all bad. And people sometimes don't want to deal with that. So I think that's why people retreat to this manichism, this binary between good and evil. Yeah. Did you study IR? No, you studied... Um... East Asian studies in English literature. And I did a Chinese literature for my... Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a little IR to me and I was like, ooh, <laughs> taking me... <laughs> Um, going off that and talking about, once again, the nuance, I'm curious as to what you see, what does the future hold for the Taiwanese and Chinese diasporas in the U.S. or Chinese diaspora communities in the U.S.? Hmm. Yeah, I think it's an interesting moment. I think that basically we have this polarization. A few years ago, for example, there's the the alliance between Republicans and, and mostly Chinese Americans regarding, let's say, the Peter Liang case involving a Chinese American cop that shot a Kai Gurley, a black man. And so that was around the time of Black Lives Matter. And so that threw into the foreground how I think for many people there, their desire for the Asian diaspora or Chinese diaspora, because uh, he the broad terms, to align with progressive causes or leftist causes was kind of shattered because you just saw people rallying behind us, being very anti-BLM, siding with Republicans and so forth. But then also then you did have the other response, which is the tankies, the idealization of China, idealizing a another authoritarian regime just because of this projection onto it, saying that everything is bad in the U.S. and everything is great there. So how to have a kind of conversation about nuance is very difficult. But I think that particularly for me, I mean, I've been outside the U.S. for a long time. Even just even here, I encounter much, or we're on the internet and other space like that, I encounter much more members of the diaspora that are tankies nowadays. People on the left are tankies. It seems like that is a response that a lot of people are going to, and it's increasingly present in, in leftist spaces. And so I think thinking through these critical conversations is very difficult. But then I think actually for diaspora engaging with the messiness of the mother country is still quite difficult. There are barriers, obviously, in terms of language or understanding context or getting beyond the context that you're used to, the dynamics of the U.S. that you're used to or whatever other place you grew up in. And then there is just the complexity of that. Um, it's, it's, just very, it's much easier to think through things in terms of good versus evil. So I think that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. I think also just... A lot of people are not actually having to go to the you know country they're from or whatever and so they are just in the us and so resources to learn in a more critical manner are just absent i have a couple more questions um first off do you ever intend to come back to the us or do you feel like you are set it's a good question actually yeah <laughs> i haven't really figured out my future <laughs> i also depend on the world's future i mean maybe it'll just be up in flames and you know next year who knows 
But I mean, I think the things I can do in Taiwan are much more useful right now. And so in terms of, for example, where I decided to, as a member of the diaspora, to stay, I felt like this was a place that could be much more influential or in terms of influencing the world for the better. I think that in the U.S., I'd just be involved in U.S. struggles in Taiwan, I'd be involved in Taiwan struggles. If I lived elsewhere, I mean, I've lived in Japan before, for example, I would also be involved in the struggles there. But I felt that my skill set or my background made me more valuable here than in the U.S. right now. And so I think there's a kind of comparative lack of that. And so I think that's part of where I decided in order to stay, in order to be able to do these kind of things, actually. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the plan currently. Um, and I didn't want to ask this, but I feel like because of <laughs> But can you talk about Cal Collective a little bit and just, um, I don't even know how to really explain it, um, but can you talk about Cal Collective a little bit in terms of why you think it's important to counteract them? and their kind of political beliefs. I phrase that weirdly, but, you know, the tankyism of it all. Yeah, I mean, Tao Collective is probably one of the most vocal Chinese diaspora tanky groups out there right now. The Europe's an internet phenomenon. It's actually a bit mysterious to me because they started off as an individual person's account. And then as a reaction to the last time collective, which is from Hong Kong and originally after the Hong Kong protest, they changed their name to Tiao Collective and then actually did gain members and it became more than just one person. There was one person's account in the beginning. In the beginning, actually, I was not too sure if they were actually diaspora, if they were just astroturfed. They kept doing events in which, for example, they would just talk about, now yeah, we're going to talk about the history of China. And no one that's actually diaspora would ever appear in front of the camera and just some random white person would appear instead and start talking about Chinese history. And so I also wonder if they're astroturfed for a while, but eventually they did have faces that started appearing. Um, and so they grow and they became a social media phenomenon. They're a little less active now nowadays. They probably, I mean, to be honest, just groups become tired. That's probably what it is. You can't always keep up this forever. But then they became a very vocal voice and just arguing, for example, for China as a, of a, as a left force in the world, denying that there was violence going on in Hong Kong or the claiming that it was justified. They would try to provide what they called education and syllabi, for example, about claiming to debunk Western media or Western propaganda. And of course, their sources are all just Chinese state media. And so China plus one set of propaganda with another, perhaps. And uh, I think the, the thing that really concerned me is that there are a lot of younger people being socialized into leftist politics through online spaces. And they were having uh, quite a lot of pull there because they could cement narratives. They were good at that. They're also very social media savvy. Um, and so that also led to further growth. And it's also quite interesting for me because they, as I mentioned, just the diaspora tankies and the actual Chinese left nationalists that are actually PRC nationals and spend their lives there and so forth and can read Chinese. I mean, Tiao could not pronounce basic, Tiao members have not been able to pronounce basic Mandarin sometimes in the events they appear in, or they have hilariously bad Google Translate tweets that are just like, what is this? Um, yeah, I mean, just the, the rhetoric differs a lot. And I think that's actually something people don't pick up on because the diaspora in the US, for example, just doesn't have access to the original source language of what Chinese left nationalists are saying regarding Deng, but also other various intellectual touchstones or points of consensus or views on history. And so that's also quite interesting to me. Um, yeah, and as I felt, I felt, a, I mean, there's a, there's a moment in which I felt like a lot of the groups that are around the diaspora, I mean, Nibelheim is Taiwanese, Lao San is from Hong Kong was the notion just to kind of ignore them. And I felt they were kind of just growing and so unchecked. So I felt there was a need to go after them actually. So I engaged in a series of polemics with them that was kind of interesting. Um, yeah, they never really responded. Um, I also feel like they kind of, their role has been superseded in some ways by other tanky groups because I, I do think any group eventually becomes a little more act, less active as time goes on and probably that happened to them. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of those kind of acting, I wanted to say thank you for um, the work you do. It's really good. I've been reading a lot of the articles and like I said, the podcast I was listening to before, 
I think it's um I think it's important work, and I think a lot of what we've talked about about the nuance of it, you know, these discussions is important to get your thoughts out there and what you have to say, and you know. I think it's all very brilliant. I'm curious as probably the last question I'm going to ask you is how do you think or what do you think is the best way forward in facilitating more nuanced discussions like this? It's a really good question. I think that the diaspora has to realize in some sense their own privilege as members of the diaspora, but also to let go of their assumptions about the world. I think that the interesting thing is that diaspora, despite claiming not to be Eurocentric or Western-centric, can often be very Eurocentric or Western-centric. It's just kind of an alternate version. And so claiming the U.S. is the ultimate bit bad and there's no other evil in the world and there's no other complexity or you don't want to think through these issues, for example, that you're of Han descent and Han are a minority in the U.S., but they are the majority in China. And so the majority, what does it do? It presses minorities. So that happens everywhere. And then thinking through that culpability or that complicity I think those are challenging questions, but I think that many people are not willing to really grapple with that. So letting go of assumptions, taking things on their own terms, rather than uh, the thing is that there is no, there's nothing to project onto. There's no romanticized idealized homeland. I mean, that homeland itself is flawed. Uh, and there are problematic politics there and everywhere. And when it comes to the nation states, uh, I mean, this, usually they are just, sorry, it's not the US, but it's probably also another nation state that has issues or is not some idealized heroic version of the US or empire or whatever. And just maybe they're all just empires or would be empires. I mean, many nation states would also find themselves in such a position if they could, if they had the capacity to. And so I think there's that. And so I think thinking that nuance is difficult. I think it means letting go of a lot of the assumptions of where you grew up in, but also then accepting that your struggle is one among other struggles and it's not the one of pivotal central importance. Because I think oftentimes then uh, with Tiao, for example, it is a claim to that, well, China is the most important place in the world. It's the left country that is the most powerful. And I am from there. I'm descended from there. I am important. And it's a way to claim relevance in that sense in a place where one is a minority. And so I think it's letting go of that kind of worldview. I really like that. Um, There is no there there. You know, that quote made me think of that almost. But this has been really <laughs> informative. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for the invite. It was great talking. If you have been, I want to thank you for listening. There's lots to take away from this conversation, but what sticks out to me the most is that idea of looking beyond yourself and your space and time. I tend to open these interviews up with really broad language, but it's important to realize just how nuanced a lot of these topics are. They will continue to be nuanced and complicated, but I look forward to broadening our horizons together. This has been Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco. If you want to continue the conversation, email us at minorityreport.beat at gmail.com. Our music was done by Aporvo Mangipudi. See you next year.